GBC Podcasts, local voices on demand. Hello, thanks for listening to the Gibraltar Today podcast. I'm Jonathan Scott. A father bereaved by suicide is sharing his daughter's story in the hope of saving lives. Rabbi Shalom Hammer is in Gibraltar at the invitation of both the charity Jibsams, represented by Brenda Kuby, and the family of Abraham Mito Hassan on the 30th anniversary of his passing. Isaac Hassan joined us in the studio together with Brenda Kuby and Rabbi Hammer. The latest COVID booster program starts next week. More details from Cristina Cortez, who spent the morning with the Director of Public Health. But first, he's the youngest member of Parliament. He's taken on shadow ministerial responsibilities for the environment, tourism, youth and equality. The GSD MP's responsibilities also include civic pride. I am, of course, talking about Giovanni Origo. How have his first few months as an MP been? Good afternoon, Jonathan. And firstly, I'd like to say it's a real pleasure to be here again. It's been quite a while since our last interaction. Less pressure than during the election? uh, Definitely less pressure during the campaign season. A bit more relaxed in the setting. With regards to your question, how my first few months as an MP been? I must say the first few months have been quite rewarding for me. The experience has been a huge learning process at the same time. So, for instance, as an MP, our responsibilities might include um, sitting on select committees. So I've been appointed to the select committee of the environment, and that's due to sit um, at the end of February. We're also meant to ask questions in Parliament, uh, vote on legislations, debates. But so far, my role's been quite varied. No two weeks have been the same, and I've really much enjoy that. It does get me very interested. So, for example, TV, radio shows like this may come at a moment's notice whilst you're preparing for Parliament or trying to collect your information and you just have to manage your time and be ready for it all. But all in all, I really have enjoyed my first few months in as an MP. Good. And, and so, so you're dividing that up with uh, your professional work as a, as a barrister? Yeah, that's correct. And is it easy to, to manage those two? It can be taxing, but the benefit as working in, in, as a barrister in Gibraltar is that we're kind of self-employed. We have our own targets. So as long as we manage to manage our own time, reach our own targets, it's not really an issue. And I'm quite flexible with how and when I need to attend to my ministerial duties. So it's fine in that respect. Okay, you mentioned the uh, Select Committee on the Environment, which will meet um, in, in a few weeks' time. What do you expect it to cover and what would you like it to cover? Well, at this stage, we the only information we have is that the Select Committee has been reconvened and the members who've been appointed to it. We don't know what the agenda will be at this moment in time, but from our perspective, I think it may be very relevant given that the COP28 just happened over recently and before the Christmas, that the starting point would be, well, what are the international uh, objectives and how can Gibraltar do its part to attain them? Okay, um, and um, you, you mentioned there question and answer sessions in, in Parliament and having to prepare for those. H- how do you prepare for them? In my case, I don't. Uh, I must say, I use an array of different methods to collect my information and come up with my questions. So if you give me a few moments, I'll come and cover through what I actually did for the first Parliament session. So with respect to my um, shadow portfolios, my starting point was turning to the manifesto of the government to see what they've promised, what objectives they have, and what has been their commitments. Following that, I made 
returned to the previous Parliament sessions and I've looked at how MPs have asked their questions, where they take the line of questioning, and try and learn from any mistakes or points that could be absorbed from those sessions where possible. And I've also find it quite useful when you look at those previous Hansards so that there may be questions you can follow up from, from that previous Parliament. Then other methods include meeting with people. So I spend a lot of time, weekends or out of my office time, meeting with NGOs, with small businesses, with individuals. They might have concerns and they'll funnel that information too. But then we also use other sources like the internet, social media, news articles. But the problem with social media is that then you have to spend some time trying to verify the accuracy of that information. You can't just really rely on what a lot of people are saying, but there is a array of different methods I use to kind of compilate my questions and I think they're all quite useful to get to where we are. And did you feel the weight of the occasion mm. when you sat there and sort of first put <clears> your your question and and, uh, and and then followed up with supplementaries? Did, did you feel like the pressure of that new atmosphere and and you know the fact that it's it's you know broadcast live and and, and it's the institution yeah. of parliament the home of democracy? I mean, the experience, the first time we had the opening ceremony of Parliament, so that helped to kind of kick off the nerves when you actually have your first session in the Assembly. But that said, I practice law, I do a lot of criminal work um, still, and we still regularly go to court. And like I was commenting before, even if we do regularly go to court, I still get a bit of nerves and um, some kind of feeling, which, <coughs> excuse me, um, keeps you on your feet and on your toes. So with respect to Parliament, it was... An experience, I must say, but having had the advocacy training, having been to court, uh, done Supreme Court and many big cases before, I quite felt very comfortable with the whole question, answering and follow-up. So for me, it didn't feel that new, but it is a different experience altogether. I think it's fair to say you're not short of confidence. Um, I was watching that session of Parliament, the question and answer, where you asked um, you asked uh, something of the tourism minister um, about uh, a committee, a UK um, committee, the name escapes me now, but it was a tourism... UK GTA, yeah. I think it was called. Yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, and... Um, and the chief minister um, said, uh, and I, I'm working from memory, but and I'm paraphrasing, but it's something like to the extent that um, uh, you know he doesn't. It, it was an old, it was an old manifesto commitment, um, and uh, and and then you followed up immediately and said, actually, it's on page whatever yeah. of, of your manifesto in 2023. Yeah, I, it was kind of a very brave moment. I think what actually happened then, and I watched it back, so I like to, I'm very um, self-critical, I like to kind of further myself, so what I did was I always watch my previous sessions and see where I can ask the questions better, were my follow-ups okay, the tone, the presentation, and with that question, uh, there was a small slip of the tongue on my part, so I think I started the question saying um, there was a manifesto commitment in the 2019 manifesto, he took that at face value, said, well, if it was in the 19, it has nothing to do with the 2023 one but that said I had done my research and my preparation and I knew where it was actually quoted in the relevant paragraph the only thing was I had that unfortunate slip of the tongue just so happened that he uh, it, wasn't, took, it wasn't a trick then it wasn't no, a trap it, it took the bait and it just kind of worked out brilliantly but uh, yeah that is kind of a nutshell what did happen so I'm sure Mr Picardo will be keen to return the favour at some point <laughs> certainly but like you say it is a bit it was very brave because you have the chief minister sat opposite he tells you verbatimly this doesn't exist and it kind of makes you question your own research and I was quite confident at the time I said no look I know this is there for sure so I'm going to um, rebuttal on it, and I did. So, very brave, but it kind of did work out well. And uh, so, uh, I suppose, 
the flip side to to, to being confident is that uh, it could encourage you to think that you're going to be okay and that you don't necessarily need to put in the preparation but you really do no you you have to you have to yeah. do the reading do the research beforehand yeah definitely so confidence can put you in a situation where you may be a bit more relaxed and i think you just can't fall susceptible to that you have to put in the work you have to do the preparation you have to do the reading and there's a lot of time behind the scenes so people may think that okay politics has kind of like slowed down a bit but they need to understand how much actually does happen outside of parliament and that's yeah. a different uh, conversation altogether well, well, tell me a little bit about um, we, we've only got a couple of minutes but tell me a little bit about life as an mp outside of parliament i mean are you getting stopped a lot with people's sort of concerns and you should ask the government this that sort of thing yeah so like i said noticeable change in my lifestyle and outside of parliament we do get stopped down a lot on the streets a lot of people try to write to you emails personally whatsapps and arrange um, meetings so i regularly spend a lot of my time outside parliament outside of work hours just doing my own research gathering and collating data like i said a lot of that is done with meetings and people on a one-to-one -one basis so generally i keep my weekends as free as possible and saturdays and sundays i arrange for coffees or lunch and in a more relaxed setting you can get a lot of information from people and i think that's very useful okay we just got one minute to go but um if i can ask you for uh, two questions with with short answers if possible um what's the ambiente like at the gsd I think the ambient is still very positive in the GSD and like to support that, look, we've gone from six MPs to eight and although that means there's a lot of new faces, it means that there's been a lot of rejuvenation in the energy and that's been really good for the group as a whole. In the context of having lost the election, look, it's not the result we wanted or we expected. However, there's not been a lot of time to dwell on what could have been or how we could have done things better. There's like I said, a lot of new faces on our side. And for those MPs, there's been a lot of learning to engage and undergo. So that has been something that we've been adapting to. So there's not been a lot of time to dwell on that. And finally, in short, what are you going to be focusing on in the coming weeks and months? Anything in particular? Well, um, my main focus over the coming weeks and months would be much of what I've already been doing now, which is kind of collating my information um, speaking with as many people and businesses as possible within my relevant shadow portfolio so I can get a better understanding of what's happening on the ground, the reality of the situation, and that is going to really help me as an MP and the questions I then ask in Parliament. But more specifically, I'm going, I spend a lot of my time and focus with the GST future, and because having been elected as an MP, I think it's now time to kind of give up that seat so I'm really working on a successful handover and hopefully looking forward to how much further that can grow. Gibraltar Today with Jonathan Scott. The latest COVID booster programme is set to start next week. Christina Cortez broke the story. Uh, Christina, you were with the Director of Public Health, Dr <coughs> Helen Carter. Uh, this, this was some time coming, I think it's fair to say, no? Yes, absolutely. It's a long-awaited news for anyone who's been wanting a COVID vaccine, uh, which, you know, in previously have arrived ahead of Christmas. Um, the boosters are now here on the rock and the vaccination programme is set to get underway next week. Uh, as you said, I spoke to Director of Public Health, Helen Carter, and she told me it's been a tough winter with lots of circulating flu A and RSV as well. We've experienced what other countries have experienced. Spain has had a surge, UK has had a surge. This is reflective of mixing indoors during winter and also lower uptake of the seasonal flu vaccine uh, of 
over the 90% of the cases we diagnosed of flu were in non-vaccinated people. So that indicates we had some good vaccine coverage, and that was for flu A. We might still get a wave of flu B infections, and that's why we're saying it's not too late to get your seasonal flu vaccine. We're pleased to announce next week we're starting our COVID booster campaign, and you can request and still have a seasonal flu vaccine if you've not had one. And uh, you've mentioned uh, those cases of flu and RSV. Have there been any severe cases? I mean, what's been the picture like in terms of hospitalisations and severe cases? Yes, we've seen a number of elderly people hospitalised as a direct result of flu. Uh, And sadly, we've had a couple of deaths from flu. That is not unusual during a flu season. And this is why we like to stress the importance of seasonal flu vaccines. The Director of Public Health, Dr Helen Carter, speaking to Christina Cortez, who's in the studio with us. Um, She did tell us, actually, uh, a few weeks before Christmas that the uptake of the uh, flu jab had been lower than previous years. And one of the reasons that she uh, put forward was that uh, the launch of the campaign had coincided with uh, the election being called and that it was difficult, you know, people's attention was was elsewhere, effectively. Yes, and Dr Carter also suggested that uh, there is a bit of vaccine fatigue after in recent years due to you know the number of boosters and so forth but you know very much a strong message that this should not deter you from from taking these as it can protect you from especially the at risk from the the strongest effects of of flu and covid and uh, and these these uh, diseases which you know we often use interchangeably flu with cold but it isn't it's a much more uh, powerful disease especially for the vulnerable um, so a strong message from public health to take up that offer off those flu and covid vaccines especially if you're at risk uh, the covid boost- boosters will be available to those in higher risk categories uh, those over 50 <clears throat> those who have long-term health conditions or have a lot of contact with someone who does. Pregnant women can also access them as well as anyone in long-term residential care and any health and social care worker. Uh, the GHA will start to call high-risk people on Monday to book them in for appointments and from then you can also call 200 66966 between 9 in the morning and 3 in the afternoon to book that appointment. The actual vaccinations will start from Thursday. And uh, people have, of course, wondered why the vaccines have taken so long to arrive this year. Uh, Dr. Carter told me this was because an older version of the vaccine was available, but that given the circulating strains, she recommended uh, that uh, ordering a newer version that would be more appropriate for these. And she said that the delay has then been on the UK side in ordering and delivering them. And um, finally as well, Dr. Carter also had some general advice for anyone with flu or COVID-like symptoms. Symptoms are very similar, fever, coughing, um, and and so forth. Anybody who has those sort of symptoms, uh, stay at home, keep warm, take fluids and paracetamol. If you're concerned and if those symptoms persist for more than three days or seem to worsen, you can call 111 for advice. And she also strongly emphasised people with that people with those symptoms, such as fever, running noses, coughing, to stay away from the hospital if possible, to, to reschedule any you know non-urgent outpatient appointments, and not to visit loved ones who might be there and might be vulnerable to the worst effects of these diseases. On Radio Gibraltar and on GBC Television, Gibraltar Today with Jonathan Scott. Mental health advocate Rabbi Shalom Hammer is here. He's uh, visiting Gibraltar uh, at the invitation of the family of Abraham Mito Hassan on the 30th anniversary of his passing um, and also uh, at the invitation of the suicide prevention charity Jibsams who collaborated to uh, bring him here. Um, So uh, before we get into 
Rabbi Hammer's um, powerful story. Let, let's just um, ask uh, Isaac Hassan um, uh, about the genesis of this and, and how, how the invitation came about. So, good afternoon, all. Um, so, basically, Dad was a, a uh, very involved in the community. In fact, he was the chairman of GBC and he'd been on the board since the early 70s and um, a passionate Gibraltarian. And he died too early when he was about 54. And uh, his passion was Gibraltar, his family, and everything he did, he did because he truly believed in it. And uh, in wanting to celebrate um, 30 years after his very early passing, we want to do something that uh, would help across the community. Uh, and the thought came to mind, why not do something about suicide prevention, which is an enormous problem. So we spoke to uh, Brenda from Gibsams, and uh, um, that's how the idea started. And then from there... You know, Rabbi Hammer came and he's done a whole load of uh, lectures, which I'll let him talk about that. Yeah, um, um, before we go there, because I think once we start Rabbi Hammer, um, it, it's so powerful that, um, that that we'll spend a while on it. Um, um, Brenda, how, how sort of um, well-received has uh, Rabbi Hammer been and, and uh, how have the talks gone? So the talks have been oversubscribed and it was like standing room only for both the talks yesterday. And I think this is just a topic. When you have lived experience, it's so impactful and so emotional that people understand this you know they they feel that emotion from that sadness and it gives us a, you know sort of something to um you know lean into with that and understand a little bit more about suicide awareness and understand that by speaking that word that it's not hurtful and so for us these this is what you know is important in our outreach of gypsams Okay, so um, Rabbi Hammer, um, thank you for joining us. Your, your, your talk at the John McIntosh Hall yesterday, uh, I am told by people there, uh, was moving um, and you advocated the importance of removing stigma. Um, it's, it's a difficult topic, but I know that you are here to talk to us about it. Um, and and uh, Gila, uh, your daughter, was 18 when she died. I can't imagine how difficult that must have been for you. Uh, that's uh, 100%. And when people say to me, as a typical response in terms of trying to mourn or comfort a mourner, they'll say, I just can't imagine what you're going through. And my response is, no, you cannot. And I hope to God that you never will. And uh, I want to thank you for hosting me here or us here this afternoon. I thank the Hassan family for this initiative, Jib Sam's for this initiative. It's wonderful to see partnerships that are involved in this important cause that unfortunately still maintains a tremendous amount of stigma around it and is not spoken about near enough. And why do you think that is? I mean, to you know, it's, I think I think I know, but why do you think it is? Well, I, I think there's two issues. The first issue is is that mental health is something that people can't see. We are a society that grapple with things that we can't see. We subscribe to seeing is believing. So when we think of illness, we think of 
you know, things that, that are acute, things that are in front of us that are curable as such through a medication or through a treatment or through something that is physical by nature. Mental health, I often explain, is a cancer of the brain, and it's something that we can't see. For that reason, it's so hard for us to fathom and to put our hands around us, around it, wrap ourselves around it, and really to be able to cure it is a major, major undertaking. And for that reason, many people would rather just not approach it at all, or it's not necessarily in the forefront of their attention because they don't see it. And yet there are many people walking around us who look as happy as can be and as successful as possible and yet are suffering internal. And it's important for us to recognize that, and that's why conversation really asks us to change our view, to change our perspective, and to understand that there are a lot of people grappling with these issues regardless of outer perception, and we have to be able to internalize and discuss them. Uh, The second reason why is because there are just many things that are so difficult for us to deal with that people would rather say, let's kind of ignore them to begin with. For example, I often explain to people in my parents, certainly my grandparents' generation, uh, people would never use the word cancer. It was like a term that just wasn't spread. And people were afraid or fearful that if you use the word, God forbid, someone would become ill as such, you know, and with time, people started using the word cancer. And as a result of that, there are a lot of treatments that are offered and a lot more understanding with regards to this illness that is unfortunately around us as and is inescapable. It's the same thing with mental illness. I think that it is starting to see a broader horizon. I think there are people who are starting to speak more about it and engage in dialogue. And the more that happens, the more education is spread, the more we'll be able to find treatments and diagnosis for it as well. On a personal level, you talked about, um, you know, there being signs that we need to look out for, but but at the same time that they are sometimes hard to see. Uh, and, and I know that Brenda has spoken about the importance of listening and, and, and really listening, not just asking, how are you, but, but, but really listening to the nuance in, in the response. Yeah, I mean, that's really important. It's about, you know looking around you and actually not just paying attention to yourself, but to those around you. And the signs are always there. It's just whether you're prepared to actually look at them. And because if once you see something, you can't unsee it. Once you hear something, you can't unhear it. So it's then you've got to do something. And that for some people is scary. And that's all to do with the stigma. And that's all to do with, you know, the fear. So we have to get rid of the stigma, get rid of the fear and understand that, you know, we all go through mental health challenges. Every single one of us is going to go through a mental health challenge at some point in our lives or know someone who has who's doing that. So we should have no fear and we should have no stigma around it. And that's why bringing um, people out like Rabbi Hammer to come and talk about their personal experiences is so important because we get to have an understanding and we get to destigmatize it. Earlier this week, we had the GHA's consultant psychiatrist, Dr. Ashim Betapadura, um, make the point that um, we all go through uh, highs and lows in our lives, and, 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 and that is part of what it means to be human, to, to experience a, a full spectrum of different emotions and experiences. Uh, and, uh, and, and those can sometimes be 
a very natural response to life events and are not necessarily um, something that needs to be treated medically and are not to be confused with um, more grave mental health challenges and psychiatric conditions. Uh, and, 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 and I suppose my question is, you know, uh, f- as, as a campaigner, as somebody who, who you know, has been close to somebody um, who, who had suicidal thoughts, um, how, how do you know when it's crossed the line and it becomes too much and, and, and is something that needs professional help? Uh, that's a it's a very very good question. I mean, I, it would be difficult for me to answer that, you know, just on on, you know, in a in a heartbeat. But um, it is something that for that reason, there's education, there's seminars. But one of the things that I do want to add, and I think will help answer this question that you're asking, is something that that, that uh, Brenda had said, and that is. One of the things that I tell people consistently is that the vast majority of people who die from suicide really don't want to die. They really want to live. And our will and desire to live is very, very powerful. In fact, someone like myself who experienced loss in ourselves, our family, my wife, that have experienced the greatest loss possible in a child, there's an amazing sense of healing that is internalized within us and and that we've been granted with. And so for for that reason, and and, and a large part of that is really our desire to live. And the reason why I say that is because, generally speaking, someone who has suicidal thoughts, they're really going to send out usually signals, help me, I want help, I need help, I want to live. And it's becoming more attuned and learning what those possible signals can be that can help save that life. So, for example, one of the things that we discuss is self-harming. When a person self-harms, they're trying to alleviate the pain internal by applying pain externally. But it also is a cry for help. It's saying, I'm in trouble, I'm in crisis, notice me and help me as such. Other things such as uh, even depression, a person who suffers from depression, when they're not sleeping or they're sleeping too much and they're spending too much time by themselves in a dark place, what they are saying, for lack of a better word, is I'm in a bad place. Recognize that I'm in that place and come help me. So it's almost ironic or strange because you ask what are some of the signs very often those signs will exhibit themselves without us having to look deeply for them it's just being aware and educated on those signs that allows us to be more attuned to what they can possibly be so if you know someone you, your sort of intuition and, and and you'll you'll just know that there's something that's not quite right that it goes a little bit beyond uh, a feeling a bit low it's 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 gone on for a bit longer it, it's more profound that sort of thing. No, you, you have to trust your instinct that uh, w- w- when you know someone and, and you think that something is, you know, really weighing on them um, uh, and, and, and try and help them and, and, and try and seek help. Yeah, I think that's, you know, it's really important to trust that intuition within yourselves. And I think that, you know, and it's knowing where to get help and knowing, you know, and what to do with that and knowing... I mean, I think there's a big part of us where, you know, we, we need to build resilience. You know, for me, it's about building emotional and physical resilience um, 
around those daily upsets. And, and I think the rabbi yesterday spoke about triggers and, you know, and I think that's really important because in every suicide there's been a trigger, there's been a trauma, there's been something. People don't end their life by suicide over um, an upset, you know, a trivial upset. There's always... A big life event. Yeah, there's always something that's caused that, whether it's, you know... Um, you know, it's something with sexual abuse or whether it's um, emotional abuse or whether it's, you know, we know a lot about the bullying that's going on, cyberbullying and physical bullying and all of those things. There's a lot of different triggers that, you know, it's never just one thing that causes somebody to end their life by suicide. I, I want to just add to that, if you don't mind, um, uh, and that is, it's not, it's very true what Brenda's saying, but also what we have to be sensitive to is what might seem trivial to us might be a very serious problem to that person. That's where the sensitivity begins. Really recognizing that, hey, what's the big deal? But to that person, it is a big deal. So much so that they don't know how to channel and deal with that pain. I also want to mention, and it's something that you use the word instinct. And I very often tell parents who are dealing with children with mental health, I say, do not underestimate your instinct. We were born with instincts. God granted them to us. Certainly parental instincts are extremely strong. And there were a number of times when we were obviously trying to help Gila through her issues that even so-called professionals, i.e. psychiatrists, psychologists, and I'm not belittling their profession, but there were a number of times, particularly when my wife would say, this just doesn't feel right. I, I, I just don't think that this is the right kind of treatment or that this is what she's experiencing. I'm just not sure. But yet we went ahead and, and listened to the professionals because that's what we're taught to do. But I constantly emphasize now, yes, of course we have to listen to professionals, but listen, do not ignore your instinct because it's there for a reason and very powerful and more so than often, correct. And nobody knows uh, a person like their parents, right? Especially when they're children and, and young. Correct. Um, so, so amazingly, you, you've turned uh, the what what ha, you know was a, a profoundly difficult time for you and and your family into a, a force for good and for trying to spread uh, the conversation, try to to get people talking about suicide and um, uh, and uh, I mean, I think a lot of people will find that quite amazing because I can imagine myself um, being weighed down by by those circumstances rather than you know, taking that, all of that energy and saying, like, I'm, I'm really going to make this work for, for something good and, and make it count. It can't have been easy. Yeah, no. I, well, you know, at this point, nothing's easy. Uh, I'm not sure that we were put in this world to have easy, so to speak. Um, it's just uh, I've kind of learned that that's part of life and you never know what fastballs are thrown at you. Um, nothing's easy. But uh, 
you know, I, I think with all of the uneasiness and all of the difficulties and whatnot, I often explain to people and they'll, you know, they'll say kudos to you with your efforts. And I'll say to them, look, it's not all altruistic. I'm not such a saint and righteous person. First of all, there are many people who have suffered loss. And with that loss, they decide to rebuild or reconstruct or commemorate by doing something positive. And while it is altruistic, undoubtedly, there also is the side that it is therapeutic. And the only way as an activist, and I've always been an activist in my life, the only way that I really could grapple with such loss, with such tragedy, with such pain, was by reacting actively. And the only logical thing for me was to try and react actively by ensuring as much as possible that it wouldn't happen to others because I I am sensitive enough. I'm I'm not the nicest guy in the world and my wife and kids will say that and agree 100%, but I, I am sensitive enough to know that I would never want anyone to feel this pain upon themselves. Thank you, uh, Rabbi. Uh, we started with Isaac. Let, let's finish with Isaac. Um, the, we know that Rabbi Hammer has made proposals to lawmakers in Israel uh, around um, suicide. Uh, are there conversations in, in Gibraltar with the government here? So we've had a lot of conversations the last two or three days with different groups, with Gibsams, with others. We have met with a number of the ministers and the mayor herself was at the event. Uh, we will carry on those conversations and hopefully uh, what we're trying to achieve as a family in our love for uh, our own people of Gibraltar here is that if we can help one life, it's fabulous. If we can uh, influence change for the better for a lot of people, even better, and that's our plan. Thanks for listening to those highlights from Gibraltar today. I'm Kelly M. Borge, the show's producer. We're live on Radio Gibraltar Monday to Friday from 1 to 2, getting behind the headlines. And you can catch up here whenever you like. Until next time, have a good one. GBC Podcasts, local voices on demand.